every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Pipeline Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Rachel Conrad, Chief Brand Officer at the Production Board, a holding company established to solve the most fundamental problems that affect our planet by reimagining global systems of production across food, agriculture, biomanufacturing, human health, and the broader life sciences. In this episode, Rachel shares with us her take on conventional marketing, why the most disruptive companies are the ones who think from a tech and marketing perspective, and the need to throw out the incumbent's chessboard and play your own game. Rachel also shares her mission for crafting brand intent first and foremost in order to make greater customer impact. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Qualified. If you're a revenue team that runs your business on Salesforce, Qualified will accelerate your lead generation, pipeline, and ultimately revenue. Learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Rachel Conrad, Chief Brand Officer at the Production Board, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Pipeline Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today I am joined by a very special guest. Rachel, how are you? I am great. Thank you so much, Ian, for having me. It's a real honor. You've got some illustrious people in your podcast alumni network, so I'm not worthy to be here, but happy nonetheless, and I'm really psyched to talk to you. Beyond worthy, and I'm beyond excited to chat about all the cool stuff that you're doing at the production board and also all the other stuff, cool stuff that you've done in your career in marketing and all, all other places. So let's get started what was your first job oh, in sales and marketing? Yeah, my first job was actually delivering newspapers when I was about 15 years old. I did that. And then I got to say, after that, my first job for realsies was at CVS. So I was selling, you know, Nugzema and acne cream and shaving cream and, you know, alcohol to, to everyone in my neighborhood near Detroit, Michigan. You have served at some of the most illustrious brands and companies like Tesla and Impossible Foods, and now you're at the production board. Can you tell us a little bit about what it means to be the chief brand officer? Yeah, so this is an all-new role at the production board. It's one that a role that a lot of venture capital companies are starting to take interest in and adopt in their own organizations. Basically, I spend over the course of a year, I'd say, I spend you know over half of my time working directly with all of our portfolio companies, sometimes as the interim CMO before they hire one, or sometimes working directly with the CMO, working directly with the CEO, doing everything from rebrands to you know website launches to coming out of stealth mode, media training. And then the other part of my time, you know, 
30, 30%, 40% of my time. I work directly with Dave Friedberg and the other investment partners at the production board, promoting awareness about what we do, not only to you know, the media and in thought leadership circles at universities and elsewhere, but on podcasts and also to prospective prospective entrepreneurs who want to talk to us about, about investments. It's a really interesting job and no day is ever the same. Yeah, it seems like no day is, <laughs> is, is ever the same. And you have not just, you know, working with startups, but an important mission as well to decarbonize earth. I mean, how important is that to you? How important is, is it to, to evangelize that, that mission? Well, I mean, to me personally, it's incredibly important. You know, in 1991, I took a class at Northwestern University called Environmental History of the United States, and it profoundly shaped my view. I was this kid who was born and raised in Detroit in the auto industry. I applied for the Lee Iacocca Fellowship, you know, to go to college, all that kind of stuff. And I was really in the belly of the beast of, you know, big autos and big, big oil, frankly. And it wasn't until I got to college that I realized, whoa, you know, there's this uh, anthropogenic global warming thing that's starting to happen more and more. There's biodiversity collapse. It's getting pretty, pretty ma major. And so I spent about a decade as a journalist trying to work on the problem. I, as a journalist, covered the EV1, the debut of the first electric car from General Motors and its demise. I started covering the Toyota Prius, the first sort of really alternative powertrain that got traction with mainstream Americans and people around the world. And then when I moved out to Silicon Valley, I was covering technology as a journalist and decided, man, maybe there's something more I can do. You know, um, I can have a bigger impact than just writing objectively about this stuff. And so I applied at the time to this utterly obscure company that no one had heard of and got a job as the head of communications. I asked all of my friends in Detroit, including at the time the heads of communications at General Motors and Chrysler, who are some of my mentors, and they said, you're nuts. Don't go to this. What's it called? Tesla? I've never even heard of this company. No. Who is this? Elon Musk? Who is this guy? But I was really drawn to the company. I took the job and it was it was insane. And obviously it was like the, the most important, you know, career fulcrum that I've ever had. I learned so much in in just a few years. And and it really made me understand that actually, you know, getting a career in an industry that is significantly um, in a startup that's significantly trying to decarbonize earth and make a difference is actually one of the most rewarding things you could possibly ever do. So I talked to a lot of students and, and other people about it. I think it's really something that anyone can do. It's pretty important. It's, it's got high degree of job satisfaction and you actually have a multi-generational future impact. So it's a pretty sweet spot for me. Let's go to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? Where you can go and feel honest and trusted and share those deepest, darkest marketing secrets. Obviously, working directly for Elon, working in comms at Tesla, a place that does marketing completely different than anywhere else on, on the globe. Yeah. How did that sort of shape your, your view of marketing? 
Oh man. I mean, it profoundly shaped my view of marketing. And I know this is going to sound really weird and controversial on this particular program, but it, it honestly made me absolutely despise conventional marketing. 20th century conventional marketing is just purely a waste of money and resources that should be spent elsewhere. So just to put this in perspective, I was doing some data analysis on this issue. If you take the top 10 global car makers by volume, so you know Ford, Honda, Toyota, General Motors, Volkswagen, et cetera, the top 10 spend well over a hundred billion with a B dollars per year on advertising, marketing, and direct consumer incentives. That is basically $10 billion a year just to steal, you know, if you're lucky, one or two market share points away from, you know, your rival, your intense rival, whether that's in Stuttgart or, you know, Yokohama or Paris or Detroit, right? And if the world could take that $100 billion that's just torched on like Super Bowl ads and, you know, dumbass tennis championship sponsorships and stuff like that and spend it on actual R&D and core innovation, we today would already have, you know, robotic, solar powered, flying drone fleet helicopters all over the place with zero fatalities and zero emissions, right? But we don't. We spend it on, frankly, kind of trivial stuff. And, and Elon is the one who taught me that, right? Like, let them, the big incumbents, torch money on stupid stuff. We won't do that. We will take all of the revenue we generate from sales and plow that not into ads or just sort of like breathless, you know, buzzy campaigns, but to better, better car, which is why today the Tesla, you know, Model 3, Model X, Model Y, they're at least 10 years ahead of of anything else at any price point, frankly. And that's by the auto industry's own admission, you know, six to 10 years ahead. So it really taught me that the most disruptive companies are the ones that not only think different from the tech perspective, but even from an advertising and marketing perspective. You know, you have to really reimagine, you have to, to, you have to really reimagine the, the playing field. And the moment that you, especially as a startup, moment you adopt the incumbent's chessboard and try to play against them at their level, you're, you're screwed. You can't outspend Toyota, right, on ads. They, they have more money than anyone else. You can't outspend Hyundai Kia on golf and, you know, tennis tournaments. They, they, they outsponsor everyone, right? So don't try, you know, you play your own game, have your own media messaging, your own channels, do it yourself and spend as much as you can on the core technology and the product. Yeah, I obviously I I agree with a lot of what you said and I I disagree with part of it, but I'll get into that in a second, but I think it's so true. It's like what my personal marketing philosophy is like fight where you can win because I grew up or yeah. I spent my formative years in the army and yeah, that's, that's what it. you do when you're in the army, right? Like yeah. you don't fight people that you can't beat and you figure out a, a way to win and um I, I fundamentally believe that like most 
great marketing is asymmetrical in some way that they're yeah. going to figure out a way to do something, be where your competitors aren't or be where your competitors are in a way that they aren't, whether it's from a positioning standpoint or, or whatever. The thing I will say that my one quibble with what you said is that the hundred million dollars um, goes to nothing. It does, it does fuel a lot of uh, the content and programming that we, we get. So there is, there is value to it there. But I think that, um, I think that most marketing teams would rather just do what their peers are doing because they're probably not going to get fired because a one yeah. to 2% difference is never going to get you fired. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. it's like, once the bottom of the boat falls out and you lose five percentage points or 10 percentage points, and you're like, well, I was just doing what everyone was doing. Yeah. And then you get fired because you have the bad quarter. It's like the people who are doing that were making investments like five years ago that you weren't. Yeah. So it's also, you know, it's, to your point, exactly. If you can steal one or two or three percentage points of market share, from if you're, you know, I, I, I spent five years working at Renault, Nissan, Mitsubishi, top three global car groups. So I, I get it that there's a very different game in the incumbent world than in the startup world. In that incumbent world, you know, if Nissan could could steal two percentage points of market share from Toyota in the United States, the world's most profitable, single, most most high margin auto selling region, people's entire careers are made out of that, right? So it's, it's almost the opposite. It's not like people are saying, oh, if I just lose, you know, one or two points, it doesn't really matter. It's more like if I just gain one or two points, that's like a lifetime career all-star achievement, right? And you can do that based on conventional sort of, you know, consistent cranking out marketing stuff. But if you're Tesla and you need to go from literally zero awareness, zero revenue, zero cars on the market to your goal, which is to replace effectively every single car and truck with electric propulsion, you know, battery powered cars, you cannot use the same playbook that is meant to gain you a couple of points of market share. It just doesn't exist. It's just not the right playbook. So this is the problem that I see. I do a lot of you know, work with startups across a lot of different industries now in the venture capital world. And that is probably the biggest problem that I see with startups is that they they are trying to replicate a playbook that is inherently meant for the incumbents who just have billions and billions of dollars to spend on this stuff. You, you cannot do that. Have you ever heard the story of the Apple Knowledge Navigator? No, what's that? Okay, so... So back in like 1987, the Apple outlined this idea of called the the knowledge navigator. I gave a talk on how marketers can create the future and I this was in there. So I know the story a little bit. But basically, long story short, they're coming up on Macworld. They wanted to to create this device. They wrote this, they wrote this basically a video. They created a video for like 60 grand. And it was called the Knowledge Navigator. And basically, it was an iPad. It is not quite, but this is like 25 years before the iPad. And so basically, they just came out with this video. They never even made the product. And then they released it in Macworld. And it was sort of like basically someone 
Skyping with someone in like a video call in Brazil, but this is like, you know, in the 80s. So it basically everyone's like, oh, that's crazy. The future, like, what is it going to be? Right. And so it inspired a bunch of people. And two of the people that it inspired were Steven Spielberg and Peter Schwartz. And they ended up making Minor- Minority Report in 2002 based partly off of this idea of this knowledge navigator. And then they inspired sort of a next generation. So one of the things that I think about marketing that's so powerful is like the ability to tell stories and the ability to influence a generation of people by being forward looking and forward thinking. And like, to me, Tesla marketing was always that, right? It was show don't tell marketing of like, we're going to show you what the future can be. And everyone else is just sort of like showing you what, is the new car this year. And like, it's such a completely different mindset of like, we are creating the future and everyone else is stuck in the past. And like, that is what any early adopter wants is to be in the future. And, And it's just like a remarkable headwind that you get when you are the one who is cool and innovative. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and it's, it's a future that is going to happen whether this is why it's so powerful it's th- this this future of in this case you know electric propulsion you know electric drivetrains in virtually every car that's out there that is going to happen and it's going to frankly happen whether or not elon was ever born whether or not tesla exists or manifests itself in exactly this way because you know petroleum is a very very finite natural resource right and Ergo, it will go away. It's not sustainable, and therefore, it's not sustainable as a business model either. And and so, this is the true power of the Tesla model of comms and marketing, which is that we're just we're just tra- here trying to accelerate the future that we know we're all destined for, and the future we frankly all deserve, right? Clean electric energy, propulsion systems, and. And we're just trying to accelerate it, right? Like that—that that is the simplicity of it. It's you don't even have to buy our car. We don't care. Go go buy another electric car. If you if you buy any electric car, you're not part of the problem. If you're buying a gas guzzler, that's the problem. That's what we want to wean you off of, right? And so we're just here to provide more options for people who want a car that is clean, but frankly is safer, has a better user interface, has better interior ergonomics, has vastly better, you know, NHTSA crash test safety ratings, all that kind of stuff, you know? And the fact that it happens to be electric, man, that's just icing on the cake, you know? I remember the first time that I heard about Tesla, I was talking to a friend's parent who's a big car guy. He had like, I don't know what he had, maybe a Supra or something. He had some little fast yeah. Yeah. and he would go and ride in, you know, I live in the Bay area. He would go ride in like hills in the Bay area and hit all the turns and love right. whatever. Right. And he said that the moment that he was converted was the first second he stepped on the gas pedal of the Tesla. Well, it's and the accelerator. Like, it's not the gas pedal. Yeah. It's geez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Verbiage matters. Yeah. The accelerator yeah. and the, the long pedal on the right. And he's yeah. like, and it took off and he's like, and I was hooked. And I, I, you know, it's I true. was, yeah. however old I was at the time, I'd never even heard of what a Tesla was. I wouldn't press my foot on an accelerator of a Tesla for 10 years later. Yeah. And I still remember that story. I remember where I was sitting and standing yeah. and seeing a devout car guy that was his 
whole life was transformed to that point. This is someone who loved cars and loved specifically like engines forever. And it was completely changed. And like, that is the type of storytelling accelerating word of mouth that we talk about in marketing all the time is so hard to do, but that's a story. Well, and not to totally dork out, but I mean, I'm from Detroit. Like we, we talk about cars at, you know, happy hour. And, and the reason that that is true is because, you know, electric cars are actually really, really, really well suited to extremely good zero to 60 acceleration. Um, Because like, think about when you turn on a light, you know, it's either on or off, you know, you're not like cranking it up and then it's cranking down, you know, it's either on or off. So you have that whole power band right from the moment you hit the accelerator. And so you get vastly better torque, even in a shitty electric car, you get vastly better torque than in a Lambo or a Ferrari because of that fundamental physics issue that you have going in your favor. So, you know, one of the things that I think Tesla did really well, which is another learning experience for me that I applied at Impossible Foods and elsewhere, is you have to understand the consumer prioritization, sort of what matters to the consumer. And for cars, a lot of it is zero to 60. A lot of it is safety, right? Because you're going to put me and my family in this vehicle. I trust you with my life car, right? Every single day. And then a lot of it is also interior ergonomics. How comfortable is it? And it's the user interface, right? I mean, how many times have, you know, like knobs and all that? It just seems so archaic, you know? And so, so Tesla really nailed all of those things, right? And a lot of the other stuff, I mean, it had to kind of get in the right zone. It had to be in the same zone as the whatever Toyota Camry or Honda Accord, but it didn't have to have, you know, the, the, the body panel gaps of, you know, a, a, a Mercedes, it just had to deliver the body panel gaps of a, you know, Nissan Sentra or something, right? Because that's not, most consumers don't get out there and like measure every day the body panel gaps, but they do really get a kick from the torque. From, um, they they want to have the giant touchscreen, the beautiful sort of user experience that the Teslas have. And so you pay attention to those things. And we did the same thing very same philosophy at Impossible Foods. It's like, what really matters to to people? It's not that their meat comes from a severed corpse of a ground up sentient being. No one cares about that. In fact, we try not to think about that, right? Like, so what we care about is number one, overwhelmingly the taste Number two, the nutritional aspect of it. Number three, the convenience, you know, slap it on the grill, it's easy. And number four, the price, right? So if you can deliver a food product, right, that tastes just as good or better than meat from a cow, that delivers the nutrition, which is a very easy low bar because beef from cows is actually horrific for cardiovascular, for every aspect of human health. And it's convenient. You can put it in stir fries or lasagna or burgers or whatever. It acts just the same as the food you you know and love. And it's at the same price point, then then you're off. Then it's done. Game over for the cow. Sounds impossible. Ah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's not. It's actually a lot easier than you think if you break it down into these, what does the consumer want? What does the consumer care about? And everything else is just not even something you should over overly worry about. You just have to be in the same zone of the incumbents on those, but you have to dominate 
the few things that really profoundly matter to the customer. I think part of the stories of Tesla and Impossible, which I'm curious to get your takes on, is about this sort of like absence of marketing. And I think that it's, I think that that's not true. I think that the absence of buying advertising is what was happening. Because as a comms person, Tesla was written about, is still written about yeah. every day, right? I mean, Elon is in the news literally 50 times a day. Well, uh, Elon now. owns Twitter, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But, but Tesla has been in, I mean, you tell me, like Tesla has been in the news every single day for, I mean, a decade, right? And so more, yeah. I think that there's so much, yeah, way more than that, 15 years. There's so much marketing happening with Tesla. There's so much word of mouth. There's so much in the customer experience of Tesla. When you meet someone and they tell you all, oh my, this is what it was like. And I just signed it on my phone and I went yeah. and picked it up. And like, there's all these things, marketing activities that are happening, that were planned, that are thought about, that are carefully crafted and considered. They just aren't buying advertising in bulk on TV stations. And like, that is a huge departure from how things were done, but it doesn't mean that there's not marketing. I would say that there is thought, a lot of thought, a lot of intention around the mission of the companies, both Impossible and Tesla. There is a lot of intention that is put into the brand ethos, the, the employment, the, the number, the, the people you hire, all of that kind of stuff. And the goal is not for us to be thumping our chests, telling our story in our own words, using a lot of marketing jingo. The goal is users. Um, the goal is having user generated content, having your true believers, your advocates persuading and convincing and converting the the non-believers right that is the goal and the fact that tesla has never done a conventional video advertisement for example is is a really great case in point they don't have to because there's literally hundreds of thousands of videos out there of people punching the accelerator and, you know, driving it plaid and driving in, you know, turn the volume up to 11 and, and, and drive it in, in crazy mode. Right. And that's the vastly more credible, better advertisement, right? It's, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a testimonial. We used to call them at Tesla, Tesla monials, right? Right. That is vastly better because it's one thing for, for me to try to go create the next 1984 ad, right? Apple's famous 1984 right. ad. But it's actually way more powerful for 150,000 users to each do a little video that they post on their own social feeds that you, Ian, see, you know, because it's your father-in-law or your best friend or whatever. Like, that's that's actually much more resonant with most people than a big budget chiat day ad. And and it's something that's frankly more sustainable. And the fact that it doesn't cost a fraction of, you know, the five million dollars it costs just to buy the Super Bowl ad time, 
that's money that you then put back into the car, into the R&D, right. into the innovation piece of it. So again, when I moved over to Impossible Foods, I thought, whoa, here's a really interesting opportunity to apply that to a product that instead of being 50 or $100,000 like the Tesla's, this is a product that's like five bucks at Burger King, you know? And so the UGC, you know, user-generated content engine at Impossible, we really honed it to optimize for that. So even we thought, again, it goes to the thoughtfulness of it. We thought about things like, oh, what if we had toothpicks with flags that said impossible that people could stick in? And then when they're biting the burger and showing on a video, showing their friends that it, the, it bleeds, that it's got rare meat inside of it, it would say impossible. Like, let's do that. Right. And, and so there's a lot of thought and intention. It's not some haphazard thing, but it's not at all geared toward us telling you consumer what the best thing that you can do is with your money. It's about you making that choice and then you telling other people. That's why they're, it's so sticky and so effective. Yeah. I would add to that too, that, I mean, my personal belief on this is like, I think probably Tesla could start spending money on ads in a, in a unique way, but because to accelerate testimonials. But I th also think that like the thing to me that, one of the things that sold me on on Tesla being cool, I don't know, no, by the way, I should say, and also I should say that you're doing this this interview in a Tesla, right? So they're also great for for podcast recordings. Yes, um, exactly. I but, should uh, say we're, I'm we're, doing it because my dog is going nuts inside barking. So I'm just trying to find a little haven. I don't normally work in the car, but yeah. Yeah, but you know, and this show is about B2B marketing and taking lessons there. And like so much of B2B marketing is about testimonials. It's about yeah. accelerating word of mouth. It's about accelerating the customer experience. Yeah. And and being able to like try before you buy and all these things. Yeah. Executive briefing centers. There's all these like it's much more complex in B2B yeah. because of those reasons. But like there's at the mall, you see Tesla has the car sitting there. Like I remember my nephew at whatever, five years old, got to sit and crawl around and, and be in a Tesla. First yeah. time in a Tesla. He went home and told his mom. He told his, oh my gosh, like I was just in a Tesla for the first time. Like that sort of stuff is so cool. The impossible yeah. flags, that's another good one. I mean, Burger King obviously marketed the living heck out of the impossible burger. Oh, you'd be surprised actually. Oh, really? That was, yeah. I mean, Burger King, it was actually the most successful launch that Burger King has ever had. They they spent no money effectively. They did one video on it. Oh really? Uh, when they launched it. Yeah. It was really all about word of mouth. And again, you know, I don't I, I don't work for Impossible or Tesla and I certainly don't work for Burger King. But, you know, Burger King when they first approached Impossible they said, you know, we really Burger King is a really interesting company in that they they're core audience is older than that of McDonald's and others. Right. And, mm. and so their core user is something like, I don't know, I'm just kind of spitballing it. It's like, like a 52 year old white guy in the exurbs of America, right? Like not as much urban penetration as some others. And, and so they were like, we're getting a lot of customers who come in and they want like a vegan option for their daughter or for their girlfriend mm. or something like that. And, and you guys have the best product in the business. What do you, what do you think about collaborating? And we were like, happy to talk, 
but like time out on, on this idea that you're going to just put it in the vegan ghetto on the menu and wrap it in like Brussels sprouts and serve it with oatmeal or something. That's <laughs> disgusting. And the amazing thing about this product is that, you know, it can legitimately take the place of your flagship product, which is the Whopper, right? The most, you know, the, the, the most important brand in the Burger King empire is obviously Burger King. And the second most is Whopper. And so we were like, you need to make this a Whopper and it needs to be center of menu because it's center of plate for consumers, right? And don't put sprouts on it. Don't put it in like disgusting pink wrapping. And again, don't put it with the salads, which are brown and sucky, right? Like, like make this go really go for it and call it the impossible Whopper. And the head of marketing at the time, this brilliant guy. And he, and he was like, I get it. Like immediately, as soon as I said that he's, I, I totally get it. That's what we're going to do. It's going to, it's got to be the Whopper and we're going to go nuts with it. Right. And he really took it. He became this huge ambassador for it, for the product, for doing it a very different way than the initial product development team thought. And, and I think that's what was so shocking and surprising. Right. And you saw some other companies, you know, Beyond Meat and others that would roll out with like, you know, the McPlant, the, the plant-based planty right. burger that's full of plants and it's good for you. And it's like, no, don't, don't do that. That's not what people want. Like, especially if they're going to a, you know, fast food restaurant and ordering a burger, they're not obsessing over the cholesterol or anything like that. Like you're already giving them a much better product. Right. And, and they, it, don't worry about these things in the value equation that they, they don't want. Right. And by doing that, you're sort of liberating your core customer who might only go there once or twice a week to get it, get it every day. Cause suddenly you've got no cholesterol in the patty. You've got, you know, a, fraction of the calories and the fat and you know all of the stuff like go for that market it's the more interesting play so you'd be surprised at how little burger king spent because it was actually much more about that word of mouth interest and the place interesting yeah so to your yeah. point there's a lot of marketing involved right but it's more thoughtful about the brand and the placement you know the coloring of the the package all of that kind of stuff the name of the package it's not about just advertising the hell out of it well yeah and that's and and I'm, i remember seeing it everywhere at launch yeah. so maybe that's just you know i'm i'm sort of reckoning it in my mind i thought i would have thought that Burger did spend an absolute boatload on advertising that because i felt like i saw it everywhere when it launched my point is that like marketing exists primarily in the six inches between your ears right it's yeah. like the 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 coolest marketing the best marketing is done the most creatively with constraints with constraints. Yeah. That's to it. figure out a way to do things that other people can't do, won't do. Yeah. And, and to, and to work, you know, something yeah. different. Okay. Let's get to the amazing work that you're doing at TPB. Yeah. Such a cool company, such a cool portfolio. What are some of the types of companies that you're working with right now? Yeah. Okay. So the production board is, a venture capital firm. It's based in the Presidio in San Francisco. And, you know, virtually the entire portfolio is um, geared toward companies that are decarbonizing earth, that are 
helping, you know, to rewild earth and restore biodiversity and that are improving public health. And in other words, making at least a hundred X improvement in the big old systems of production that used to, you know, crank out, you know, energy, vehicles, food, everything else that, that we live by. So the portfolio includes a number of companies in the food tech space and in the ag tech space. The founder of the company is this guy named Dave Friedberg, whose first company was the Climate Corporation, which he sold in 2013 to Monsanto for $1.1 billion. It was the world's first digital agronomy company. And so a lot of the, 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 the portfolio is, is related to his work in food and ag tech. And then we also have a company called, this super interesting one called Super Gut, which is a gut microbiome nutrition company that, that sells food products that are geared to reduce your blood sugar levels, your A1C levels through all natural ingredients helps you lose weight, helps you maintain better mood, sleep better, poop better, everything. It's a pretty amazing set of products that are geared toward restoring public health. And and then we've also got a bunch of a bunch of other investments in, you know, the future of manufacturing, in the the future of the way we produce materials and energy and a um, whole bunch of things. So it's a super exciting place to be. And like I said, it's a, it's a real learning curve. I, on, on any given day, I'm doing something different. And there was even one day earlier this year where in a single morning, I was researching nucleosynthesis and biomining and decentralized finance. You know, like that's, that's become my life. So it's really pretty interesting. We were talking before, like at Impossible Foods or Tesla, those were not easy jobs at all. And I would never have described them that way. But now when I look back at them, I feel like I could indulge in, you know, very deeply in single verticals, right? And, you know, I could know everything about the impact of animal agriculture on our planet. And that was, that was good enough. Or at Tesla, I could take all of my wealth of knowledge about the auto industry and apply it to battery production and startups and, you know, photovoltaic, you know, powered cars and all that kind of stuff. It was super, super fun. Now it's like every single day I need a PhD in something that I don't have, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Where you open up the playbook and talk about the tactics that help you and those companies win. I don't even I don't even know what you would say are your uncuttable budget items at this point, but could you just sort of talk through some of the ways that your portfolio companies invest in marketing or that you recommend that startups should invest in marketing with all of the caveats that it depends based on what you're doing? Yeah, obviously. Well, the one thing I would say, and and I'm the people on the finance team, like the CFOs that I work with, they always love me because my attitude is like literally 
everything in marketing and comms, you, you should and can be able to cut if you have to, right? Like you can collapse this down to zero if you have to. And and I really believe that. I, I actually can't stand it when I work with people who are like, nope, we can't, we cannot function without X, Y, or Z. And I'm like, then why are you here? Right. You know, I mean, just so anyway, I'm I believe, especially for startups and hi, hiring people who are Swiss army knives, right? Who can do a lot of different things, who can flex way out of their comfort zone, who can do social media one day and who can help me put an event the next day and who are good at internal comms because that's always needed, et cetera, right? Who are real jacks of all trades. That's really the name of the game in startups. So I don't think that there should be ever an uncuttable budget. That's just not the reality of startups. The reality of startups is that every single one during any piece of the economic cycle is that you raise a round, you make some key hires on your team, you expand budgets, you can hire an agency, you can do what you need. And then you start getting closer to burning through all of your cash. You start seeing that ticking tock of the runway, right? And you pull stuff back in, you make budget cuts, you call your agency. I'm so sorry, I've got to stop, got to halt, I got to cut it in half, cut the budget in half, do all that kind of stuff. You, all, you have to do riffs. You have to make all these hard calls, right? And then, you know, you get another round and all right, great, back on again, right? That's just the reality. That's the rhythm of Silicon Valley startups. And if you as a marketer can't roll with that, like go to a big incumbent and and try your luck there because the the reality of what startups do is that they have to flex according to how much money is in the bank. I would say that marketing is uncuttable and you can define marketing how you choose, but like there's two things that companies do, right? They're, they make stuff and they sell stuff and the sell stuff is your revenue generation function. Yeah. And if your go to market function doesn't align like with your strategy, with your product, with like all that stuff, if you haven't thought about it, you're, you're going to fail. I know so many founders that don't think about go-to-market strategy, yeah. whether it's sales-driven or marketing-driven or yeah. you know, bottom-up or top-down or whatever you want to do, and they fail because of that. So yeah. like my piece on what you said is I think generally that's all, that's all very true, but I think that when you don't invest in marketing, however you define that, you will lose if you're not thoughtful about it. I agree. I don't think we're too far off on this. I will just say, I know right now we're in a real period of doldrums in tech investing. You know, there are a lot of great companies that, you know, they have two months, three months of runway, right? You got to make some really hard, hard choices because you just don't know when that next infusion, that next investment is going to come in. And I know multiple, multiple marketers who it's just down to like the CMO and chat GPT at this point, you know, I mean, that that's just reality and you have to be okay with that. So if you get too precious about like preserving the marketing budget, I mean, often you're just, you know, depleting cash and that's going to either make you hit hit the wall, go into the zone of insolvency, or you're just going to dilute your own shares going forward in the next round if you require a big budget just for marketing. I'm talking like mission-based startups, right? 
you do need to have a mission that you can articulate. And that's something I'm always shocked at the number of companies I dive into either, you know, as a consultant or we're looking at a company and considering investing in it or something. You, you ask the founder, you know, like, why does your company exist? What's the mission? And it's some rambling, you know, soliloquy right. about the technology and the physics and the MIT, you know, thesis paper and all, you know, and it's like, whoa, what problem do you exist to solve? You know, and so I when I think about the work that I've done for for other startups, it a lot of it is really doing some very basic brand articulation, right? Like, what is your thesis? Why does your company exist? If your company is successful, how will it change the world? How will the whole world look different as a result of your company and its technology, right? There are a lot of companies out there that just don't even have that yet. And so they they tack on this marketing stuff. I, I've dealt with companies before as a consultant where, you know, they have like two, three people working on social media and they don't have an articulated mission for why they exist. Right. And I'm like, right. what are you doing? Right. So I, I find that when 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 I say everything is cuttable, I mean, a lot of the staff, a lot of the programs, a lot of the campaigns should be cuttable. But it always goes back to that core story and and that core articulation of your mission. That, to me, is not cuttable. And that is where I actually think companies could spend more money, could spend more time, whether it's, you know, bringing on someone, you know, to, to help with it or, you know, bringing on a consultant or doing some workshopping or something. That is really, really helpful. I think, too, that a really good point that you're making which is one that I got from a CFO years ago is you need to have a triaged plan of what you cut in yeah. order as a CEO yeah. of like, when do we, who do we cut? When do we cut whatever? Yes. Like what is the order of operations in which that ha has to happen? And then where are the milestones in which those cuts need to happen? Like yeah. that's one of those things that like, it's easy to be a sort of, you know, peacetime founder and much harder to be a wartime founder. Yeah. What I always advise CEOs, I, I talk to a lot of CEOs, I mean, every week about this. It's like, you need to tell me, but we, I will help you flesh out and articulate the mission, why your company exists, how the world will look better because of your company, right? I can help you do that if you can't do it endemically inside. But I then need to work with you a lot. You pretty much need to tell me who your key stakeholders are, you know, and you can't say everyone, right? That's what they all say. Oh, we want to be everything to everyone. It's going to be amazing. We want hundred right. percent awareness and blah, blah, blah. No, you don't need that. Usually somewhere between seed and series B or C, right? You, your, your key stakeholders are prospective investors because you need new investors, maybe media, if you want to get the word out in some specific way. And maybe it's, you know, regulators and policymakers, maybe it's, you know, the FDA in the case of Impossible Foods needed to get approval on some of its ingredients, or maybe it's, you know, early adopter consumers who are going to buy $150,000, you know, Lotus chassis with a Tesla engine in it. I don't know. Right. Like, give me three stakeholder groups and I will put together, you know, messages for those audiences. And then we'll then talk about 
tactics, whether it's social media or old fashioned press releases or outreach to business press uh, or thought leadership programs at universities or whatever, we'll put that in place then. I see too many companies put the tactical marketing cart way before the message and the stakeholder groups. That is just the key thing for me that's inviolable. Yeah, I think you know my piece on this is like, you need to be obviously as close as humanly possible to the people who will actually spend you spend money who are not your friends on yeah. your product yeah. and earning those conversations. However yeah. you want to do that, sales, marketing, go to market, whatever, you need to be booking those conversations, having those conversations and convincing people to give you their money. And it, whether that's online or whether it's in person or whether it's like how, or, or just on your website or whatever it is, that like, that is the gold star, like having those conversations, learning what they're saying, learning how they're buying, why they're not buying all those things. Like if you ain't doing that, like your business will not survive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you no chance. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, the Jeff Bezos sort of, you know, super obsession with the customer, right? I mean, and in early stages of business, your customers, especially before you have revenue, before you have a product on the market, right? Like your customers are effectively the people who will give you money, including investors, prospective investors, maybe it's, you know, government programs or others, right? Like think, think really critically about who your key stakeholders are. Okay. Let's get into our final segment here. We're going to do quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like how quickly qualified helps companies generate pipeline faster Tap in your greatest essay website to identify your most valuable visitors and instantly start sales conversation quick and easy, just like these questions. They're our best friends in the whole world. So go to qualified.com to learn more, start sales conversations quickly, quick hits. Rachel, are you ready? <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, that's, that's intimidating. Yes, I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> intimidating like you want to go to qualified.com or intimidating just like quick hits. No, like after that amazing monologue, that was great. I'm going to go to qualified.com today. <laughs> I like that. Like where your head's at. What's a hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? I can stand on my head upside down, obviously longer than probably anyone. I do it Ooh. a lot. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite book, podcast, or TV show that you're checking out that you'd recommend? Oh man, this is a really, really hard one. A book that I have read in the past year that was really highly valuable was called The Power Law. I'm brand new to venture capital, and there's a great book by a journalist, and it's called The Power Law, and it's all about the sort of wacky laws around yeah. venture capital. And anyone who's interested uh, either in going into a venture capital firm like I did or getting money from a venture capital firm, which is all the people I work with, you should read that book because it really explains how VCs think. And it's not intuitive. It's not the way most people think. Yeah. Very strange. Very interesting. Yeah. Totally agree. Kind of warps my brain a little bit. What would be your best piece of advice to a CMO who's in their first CMO job at a startup? <laughs> Thick skin. Yeah. Have a very thick skin. Try new stuff at least once, twice, maybe even three times a year. Do a campaign that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. 
a few years ago, the first person I hired at Impossible Foods is this amazing, amazing marketer and communications pro named Jessica Applegren. She's probably the most accomplished sustainability oriented comms and marketing pro in the world. Now she's at Google, actually. And she had this crazy idea to do an educational campaign in schools around the importance of plant-based meat, the true environmental horror show of animal agriculture. And it had effectively no funding, you know, but we took this curriculum to a bunch of schools and now it has become like one of the most intriguing, you know, thought leadership vehicles in, in the plant-based movement because it's, you know, the, the program and the product, the impossible product that comes with it is sold in, you know, the Oakland, California school, school districts all over the country. When she first approached me with that, I was like, that just sounds too nutty. Why would we go for kids in third grade or whatever? Right. But that's the kind of program that I think every CMO should be open-minded to multiple times per year. Like just go out of your comfort zone, do something that you're uncomfortable with. If it doesn't work, it's okay. Right. But if it does, it could really be a, um, a gold mine. It could be a real unlock for your company. Yeah. Save 10% of your budget for experiments. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, I love it. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of those stories. So many good ones there. For our listeners, you can go check out the production board. Go to tpb.co and learn about their cool, all the cool companies that, that they've invested in and are building. Rachel, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Yeah. The one thing I just wanted to say is I, I work a lot with students. I talk to students a lot at Stanford and, and elsewhere. And a lot of people want to bend the trajectory of their career into sustainability, into climate tech in particular. And, and I really just want to tell people that you can. It's easier than you think. These companies have a lot of need for people from every part of the organization, from every industry, right? There are parallels. And you, I, I have nothing against nonprofits. I think they're great. I'm on the board of one. Check out Earth League International. It's great. But at the same time for your career, you do not have to take a vow of poverty. You do not have to relegate yourself to living on some, you know, earth ship in the middle of the desert in order to be sustainable. You can actually have a pretty big impact by leveraging capitalism. And, you know, my old boss, Elon Musk, is now literally one of the richest people in the world. And his, you know, the vast majority of his industrial empire is all around decarbonization you know, decarbonizing transportation and energy. And if we can't do that and we ruin this planet, his fail safe is to go to Mars, right? And with that portfolio, he has become one of the richest people in the world, right? So if you don't see those trend lines and think that capitalism can help solve this late stage problem, you are just being willfully ignorant. You can do it. You can change your career. You know, I did, you did. And, and I actually think it's the best thing for, for the planet if more people did that. I love it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rachel. And we'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye, Ian. Thank you. Thanks again to our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational sales and marketing platform that transforms the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.